<laughs> unbuckling his belt and taking out his trousers. And my mum and dad were on the front row, and I was like, oh my god, what's going on? Oh my god. And everyone just was like, oh, is Claire going to stop this? What's going to happen? I'm like, oh, I'm not even sure. Anyway, let it go. And he said, this is what I was wearing. It was a tutu. Oh my god, thank god for that. You've <laughs> <laughs> never been so happy to see a tutu in your life. two writers in Manchester, surprise, just like every podcast I've done. Um, David Gaffney has written all kinds of stuff, mostly short fiction, but he's, he's doing a lot of other things these days, and he talks about some interesting stuff, including a new novel. Um, Claire runs a night called Verbose in the Fallow Cafe. It's a, I, I almost want to say it's an upmarket literature night, but that might offend all my friends that do other the other ones. But it is. There's a bit more style about verbose, I think. Um, and it's in a, an interesting part of the city, i.e. not the center. Um, although I'm not sure they call it bringing words to the burbs. I'm not sure Fallowfield counts as a burb. But, um, you know. And she does a very good job of uh, explaining her night and what it's all about. And she's got some lovely stories, including the one you heard at the start. But most of it I couldn't use because this man was sitting behind us. Yeah, that's it there. It's called... When did we actually get to... I was long, but I was the expectation. Where's Christian? I think that's what it was very wrong. So did you know he's going to get changed? Yeah. Why do you go to the pub if you're that ill? Um, so, yeah, basically we moved quite quickly outside and began recording there. Um, you'll notice in the podcast that there are outsidey sounds and stuff um, as a result, and I quite like it. I quite like these kind of sounds. Um, I think there's a bin lorry and some, there's a really like a fast car, and there's like the, tra- the train is close. And there's also some people speaking in the background they, that come out and are at different tables. And I'd be interested to know if... People who listen to that are, are annoyed by it. Um, would you rather it had the stony silence, like the beginning bit, like this right now, what you're listening to? Um, I quite like the buzz of a pub in the background, but I can understand why, understand if it becomes too much. Um, so I was at this uh, writing conference last, I was going to say last Friday, but what difference does that make to you? Who knows when you're listening to this? Um and uh, it's, I've been to a few of these now, and there's something that happens in all of them that makes me want to kill. After you've seen a session of like a, a writer or, or an agent telling you how to improve your work or how to get uh, an agent, how to get published, uh, you know, interesting talks, there's always time for questions afterwards. And there's always some fucking bastard who, fe- who says... Oh, I haven't got a question, but I've got a comment. And then proceeds to take up about 20 minutes of everyone's time talking about his own fucking shit novel. I don't know who you are or where you think, where you've been, who's told you that this is a fucking okay. Everyone in the room wants to kill you. I know you think you're 
showing off and people are really happy to hear about your work. No one gives a fuck. You're not the ones on stage. We paid money to be here. Shut the fuck up. Or ask a question, which is exactly what they asked you to do. Um, and because yeah, you, you know that a lot of these things, there's, there's a lot of new writers who need a lot of advice and um, have good questions for these people. And these dickwads take up all of their time. And then, afterwards, they'll go and molest them, the writers, after, the, after they've finished with their talk. I fucking hate these people. Anyway, um, after the sessions, uh, we had pitching sessions. This one in particular, they actually pair you up with, well, what I thought were agents. But turns out one of them was a publisher and the second was a literary scout. And uh, the first guy was amazing. Like he's, he's, I'm not going to mention his name, but he's a senior editor for a, an imprint, a science fiction imprint of a very, very large publishing company. And it wasn't until I was about halfway through the pitch that I realized I was act- just going step by step through the book itself. And you can see it in his face that he's kind of nodding off. Then I get to the main a bit of the book um, that it's based on, and he perks up a bit, and then gives me lots, loads of good advice and finishes with, you know, it's all great, but post-apocalyptic fiction does not sell anymore. Um, but he gave me his card anyway. I'm not sure why, but uh, I'm happy to have it. Um, it didn't ask me to send him anything. Uh, and also, he said, yeah, good idea is to get an agent, which, you know, what, you think I'm not fucking trying to get an agent anyway? I then move on to pitch to another lovely person who I knew absolutely nothing about going in. And she was described as a literary scout, and I, which, I mean, even now, after I've finished speaking to her, I have no idea what that is. I had a great conversation. I took the advice from the first guy, and I was, because I didn't know her or anything about her, I was really relaxed. And we had a really good talk. She said, oh, it's, she was getting excited about the book. I think that's something I'd love to read and blah, blah, blah. And then the time was coming up and she goes, okay, well, thank you. And I said, oh, right, okay, so is, it, is that it? And she goes, yeah, there's, there's, there's nothing I can do for you because, once again, post-apocalyptic fiction doesn't sell. <sighs> yeah, so I don't know. I don't want to say it was a waste of time. But I don't know if it was worth 25 pounds. Is that a lot of money to spend for something like that? I know it's a lot of organization and loads of agents and stuff. Um, but, God, deflating. But never mind all that. Let's talk to the loveliest couple in the Manchester literature scene, David Gaffney and Claire Conlon. Dan Berry and a musician actually called Sarah Lowe's mm-hmm. and we were commissioned by the Lakes International Comic Art Festival mm-hmm. in Kendall from in, there, in, in Cumbria uh, to produce what they called was, was a live graphic novel so for a graphic novel for performance mm-hmm. so 
so we were commissioned to do that. We've been working on it for 12 months, and uh, how we've done that is we've worked on about 12 or 15 of my very short stories and made them into a, a, a one sort of portmanteau tale, mm -hmm. which Dan has then illustrated by um, knitting it all together and making it cohesive with the same characters appearing throughout. Yeah. And, uh, and then we performed it live um, a couple of weeks ago for the first time in, in Kendall to, to an audience of comic book artists mm -hmm. and comic book professionals. And it went down quite well. It went down actually. really well. Yeah. yeah. And so it was... Um, a lot of interest. And an awful... It just made you realise as a writer how much visually that you leave out it's not a bad thing, yep. but you write something and you, you, you often portray what a person looks like through their actions, not through a description. But when you're working with a, someone who needs to illustrate that and make the person real, mm -hmm. they then will say to you, well, I think this person's quite fat and I think they're about this age and I think they've got a green coat mm -hmm. and a red hat and all of that, which are things that weren't in necessarily in your story, yeah. Yeah. but they will bring things to life. I think Dan really kind of had a good conception of what Valerie looks like. So yeah. she's the main character throughout mm -hmm. the whole thing. And um, because it started that the actual story, Three Rooms in Valerie's Head, is about this character Valerie who thinks about her ex boyfriends as being in a prog jazz band or something. Yeah. Uh, or a trad jazz band, I can't remember. But um because of that she's got a stripy T shirt on and long dark hair and um and I think he's like, you know, I think you probably have that in your head when you read the story. Yeah, and maybe. I think Dan maybe actually, is, he's got a very visual mind and picked mm -hmm. up on that a lot. Yeah, maybe. and he will have. It doesn't say in the in the story that she wears Converse All Stars on her feet, but she does in the drawings. Right. That Dan draws, she mm -hmm. does that, and and everything's brought to life. So it's it's it is, it is uh, fascinating working with somebody who brings it to life like that. And and then you realise all the. Um, the things that are difficult for a, for for somebody illustrating something, such as one of the scenes is set in a piano accordion shop, mm -hmm. and and Dan was saying to me, "Do you realise how difficult it is to draw a piano accordion shop? How many buttons and a piano accordion?" He said, they, "I could cheat," he said, "and do a view from above yeah. and just have them in there, or a view from somewhere else." He said, "But really, that would be lazy. Yeah. I'm going to have to sit down and draw these fucking piano accordions all around the wall." And he did, didn't he? Yeah. He just drew all of the all of it, and it started making that world. It's painted. It's slow, yeah. meticulous work. It's sort of thing that us writers don't know how tough it is. Yeah, well, yeah, we've got the easy bit. No. <laughs> and one of the reasons that I do, I get interested in things like performing a graphic novel live yeah. is mainly because I always think that live literature and people standing on a stage reading off a bit of A4 paper out of the book is quite dull Did, quite yeah. hard to concentrate mm -hmm. on what they're, they're doing because can generally be. can be we're generally us writers not actors and yeah. not trained performers so you know anything over three or four minutes begin it's easy to get distracted from the story they're telling so I'm always yeah. looking for ways to do that so I've done things like I, I do think that live readings of text uh, poetry or prose works really well with music so yeah. I don't think we do enough of that um, there was a night in Manchester where they combined jazz didn't they? Oh, yeah, short it was stories it was great it was so they had live jazz night. music Oh, what was it Night Light I think it was called yeah. Yeah. Night Light it was great so, so is that a, where the Le Malheureux 
Well, kind Le of, Mal I think so, which is what we thought, yeah, it came from that event, because I thought I was asked to do a, a reading to promote my new book at the, at, at the Bad Language, I think. And I just it was Bad Language's first birthday. Bad Language's first birthday, so I said, well, I could just stand up and read stuff out, but how, how much better it would be? Would it not if I got my Casio organ and composed some tunes yeah. and and the lovely Claire Conlon read out the tunes <laughs> yeah. instead? And well, it was just much story. more interesting. And we just did that the first time. So I wrote. I hadn't written tunes we, for we organ before. We didn't tell anyone what we were doing. No, really? we didn't. Wow! You sprung that on them. You sprung that on them. I I wrote the tunes, so and it didn't take that long really to write the tunes. I know the tunes are extremely sophisticated and complex, so people would think they took a long time. (laughs) But I just found I was I was I had a natural talent for writing cheesy crap organ tunes. Right, (laughs) it just flowed from within. (laughs) I could just write cheesy organ. It just was within me. It was a font that was tapped. It was tapped. Yes, it just came out. Do you allow yourself to just to uh, ad lib on the fly as well? (laughs) No ad libbing. (laughs) No, there's no Adelaide. Is that the only no jazz then? Yeah, there's no none of that. Um, So it's all quite tight. So I wrote these various tunes and um, and 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 wrote them, and then we rehearsed and trying to work out which story fitted with which which organ piece. Mm -hmm. And then when we when we first did it, it went down really well, didn't it? Yeah, people just started going, "This is crazy." So it was supposed to be a one-off, but everyone kept going. You're gonna do this again. You're gonna do this again. So we were like, oh, maybe. Um, so then we did it again. So we did it um, again, and then we came up with the name of the act, which is La Malheureux. And yeah. then we combined my stories into it as well. Yeah. So and half of the set is David's stories now, and half is my stories. That's right. So we do half and half, and we also do visuals with it as well. So we do slides. Which are a combination of some graphic novelists who've drawn things for my stories, and some other artists who've done things for yours. Yeah, and and just photographs and photographs and and stuffed mice that we've used. (laughs) So, performance-wise, you 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 think that you you think visuals really are almost necessary in a lot of ways. I think I think so. I mean, I think that the the problem is that. Producing, just standing and reading a short story. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it done well and be gripping, but it's quite difficult. Uh, I think visuals can can work, but also on the other side, it can be distracting. I think yeah. sometimes there's too much going on. Yeah. And if you have loads of stuff going on on stage, loads of musicians and things that are reading the story, then you're going to lose the story. So I think it's a it's a balance thing. It's a fine thing. line. It's a mm-hmm. fine line. Mm-hmm. And, but it's um, it's interesting if. People have heard your stuff before, which often happens because there are so many nights in Manchester. Yeah. That you might have read your material before, so if you've got that extra thing, people often come away with something different each time you do something. Yeah. So that's quite interesting. Yes. I notice a lot of other performers in Manchester are beginning to use props and bring up pieces of paper and yeah. things out of their pockets and doing things and just making the whole performance a bit more... Um, present. I'm yeah. Here. yeah, I'm here in front of you. I'm really yeah. here doing something. Yeah. Look at me and pay attention. Yeah, and I don't think yeah. that 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 it's moved into that. There was a and great thing recently that Dave Hartley did at the Rochdale yeah. Literature and Ideas Festival, mm-hmm. and um, the, the theme was supposed to be philosophy. Most of us went off off piece on that one. Yeah. But, um, David really thought about game playing and the philosophy of game playing. So he brought a load of games with him and he started off with Jenga. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, this could go horribly wrong. Yeah. It could go really badly wrong. Brave that, yeah. It was yeah. just really good. And people were really focused on it because everyone knows that it could go horribly yeah. wrong. 
really listen to the story And he balanced well. little tiny characters on top of these Jenga bricks Gosh. on little shelves, didn't he? Yeah. Did yeah. That. And then he did a story based on the Guess Who game, and he flipped the, the, the tabs over and all of that. It was just probably engaging. Yeah. Yeah, it was. The whole, the whole thing that he did, and it was about it being... It was more interesting than his projections, to be honest. Yeah. He projected Jenga and projected things. It wouldn't have been that interesting. No. But the fact that he had them there, and they were actually physically there, and he was moving them around, was good, wasn't it? Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, yeah because it's, it, it's almost uh, theatre when, yeah. when you move into that, isn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah. And that's where you start. And I think that for live literature in general, it's beginning to... Spoken word, live literature, live art, contemporary theatre, comedy, all of those areas are starting to blur mm-hmm. and become and become one thing. I think people say, oh, I'm a good poet, I just stand up there, but actually, I could do an hour long show mm-hmm. with visuals and props and music yeah. and the whole thing. And I think more and more, some artists are finding themselves. Uh, becoming um, live artists and yeah. performers. And that's one of the things about Verbose was I was trying to, when I took it over, was to um, think of how it could be different because, you know, you can't beat that language, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, so I came up with two things. One was hopefully have some visuals. Mm-hmm. So we've done quite a lot of projections. Um, we've got a very low stage so I don't think the Jenga thing would work but mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Dave stood on a chair and did some kind of um, throwing bits of paper around and things of drawings um, and the other thing with Verbose was to have um, people who collaborate on projects together um, as the guest speakers so instead of just one guest speaker and a load of open mic it's three people who collaborate on a project so for example that maybe they're all publish a magazine mm-hmm. or they uh, flash tag have done it for yep. example or like the other room the other who room work together who as poets. experimental they don't really collaborate poetry. on their work but they collaborate yeah. on the project well the thing is the other room the guy three guys who run it um, James Scott and James Scott and Tom Tom um, they <laughs> run this amazing poetry night it's brilliant it's been going for ages um, but they never actually read their own work at the night. So it was, I thought, oh, it would be great to get them all together to read their own stuff. Yeah. So, so do they work around a theme then, or is it just, like, no. why collaborate? Like, yeah. why, why be together, really? I, yes. Unless you're kind of working on... Because you're saying that they don't even do the same things, really. Mm. No. They, is they, it just kind of like a moral support? They, they have a, yeah. a similar ethos and, a, and an aesthetic that they all agree on, right. which is kind of on the avant-garde. Uh, for experimental poetry, so they have an agreed sort of mm. set of almost principles, yeah. Um, yeah. but they're unwritten, but they're mm. kind of there, and that's what they do, yeah. don't they, together? But I think generally in Manchester, people like to collaborate on things because it gets people together and it gives you, like you say, moral support. Yeah. Um, and you do your own stuff, perhaps, or you can do an actual collaborative project together. Right. But just having like the groups of people. Yeah. Who work on things together. I suppose there'd be like some kind of critiquing of each other's work well, as well too. Well that's true, yeah, like writing be, groups. Yeah. So we've yeah. done, um, we're in a writing group called Inklings, mm-hmm. so we've had Inklings readers as guests at Verbose as well. Okay. So we all work on obviously our own stuff and then like you say, critique it. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to get loads of different voices as well then. Yeah. So 
it's uh, yeah I think there's a really strong thing in Manchester for that kind of stuff where people actually go I don't want to sit on my own in a room and write stuff like solitary and yeah. I want to kind of share it with people before it goes on stage mm -hmm. um, but you, you, don't, you wouldn't do the writing in, in a collaborative way no, it's no, still, no. writing is still a pretty private thing isn't it yeah the actual physically putting words down on paper or do you because I, I don't know I couldn't imagine having someone look at it as I'm writing like oh. I, I like to have it like at least a first draft or something and then give that to my writing group or whatever and then let them rip it to pieces <laughs> if you were writing something like a, a TV show in America you would write in a team wouldn't you yeah, yeah. I suppose write, that's true spitballing with a story arc mm. for the whole series yeah. and then a story arc for each program which we've done separately and then yeah. we would all write different parts yeah well we have kind of pondered yeah stuff like that haven't we me and you yeah a kind of version of consequences almost mm -hmm. where i kind of write Never a bit of a story it, and then you write a bit and then i you know feed off that but yeah, yeah. i wrote a collaborative but don't want nick that idea because it's mine <laughs> i wrote a, i did write a collaborative novel with another writer mm. yeah. what was that um it was called something in the way mm -hmm. and it was with nick thompson and we both had we so we agreed a, a general plot we had four characters and the, the lot novel would be told by the point of view of each of the four characters, and we had two characters each. Right. And then we, and each character took turns in each chapter to tell the story. So you. So but we would deliver each part to the other. I would deliver my part to Nick and his part to me, and then we would go off and do the next part. Oh and wow! It worked quite well. So yeah. it would fall out because, of course, Nick's characters appeared in my parts, and Nick would say to me, "Wait a minute, they wouldn't Charlotte's my character. She wouldn't sleep with uh, him in your yeah. part. So when they're in my part, they do what I say. Yeah, in my part. You but then, of course, but yeah. then when you've done something to his characters, the next chapter, he's like, "Well." I'll take his character. Now he's, yeah. you know, yeah, <laughs> he's yeah, selling exactly. himself on the street. Yeah, <laughs> drug money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's many examples of successful co-written novels. Yeah. Well, no, there are, because there was that famous one. But that's the only one. The yeah. woman and the man. That's right, there? yeah. What was that? Can't called remember. Come Something or Come Together. Come Together, I think it's called. Right. Mm. Yeah, and they did um, half each. Yeah. Uh, but that's the only one Is I think, it? that it's... I've come across. And other people may know others. But it's a... Uh, it's because it's quite difficult. You have to plot meticulously mm -hmm. together to know yeah. where you're going to get to. And it's most novelists that I know don't like plotting. Yeah, it's people hate to plot. On your own, yeah, isn't it? definitely. Yeah. And they hate, they hate that. But it worked. It worked for us. We finished it. We never got it published, <laughs> but we did finish it. Mm -hmm. And it was a good process. And it didn't mean you could. It, it was more enjoyable than writing on your own. Because me and Nick could go to the pub and say, "What are we going to do next?" Yeah. Well, if we finished part one. Into part two, what should we do? Maybe we should kill Ben. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should kill him off, should we? Yeah, let's kill him off and bring in a new character. No, we'll explain. Yeah, let's do that. So yeah. you go back and then you'd, you'd, you'd make decisions together. Brilliant. Uh, which was interesting. Yeah, it would have, I, I, like you say, I, I couldn't see that working unless it was heavily plotted because mm. you could get carried away and kind of lose yourself in it, couldn't you? And it could go a yeah. you know, hundred million different ways. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. True. But Ian, I did this event at the Literature Festival with Ian Pears, who's written this, um, this novel as an app, mm -hmm. which is sort of a, 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 an app where you can, it's almost like choose your own adventure, but mm -hmm. it isn't really. You're choosing yep. other strands of the story, but it doesn't change the consequences yeah. as that. And his idea for that, which we just realised, was that other people could go onto the app and write other strands to the story. Anyone mm. could. It would be open source. Oh, so you'd okay. go on and you would say, oh, this strand here, I'm going to write a new strand. 
coming off this bit, I'm going to write a whole strand of the book that comes off from there and goes sideways, yeah. off into a whole different thing, and maybe it turns around, maybe it comes back to the novel, and maybe it, it joins on later on. Right. His vision for it was that lots of writers could all go on and write hundreds of thousands of words on this enormous so collaborative he's novel. he's trying to get someone yeah. to do his job for him. Well, he'd done 250,000 <laughs> words on it. He Bloody writers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so do you, do you think... You, do you see yourself doing uh, any kind of like you know traditional short story writing anymore? Is that kind of are you, are you kind of bored of that sort of thing now? Are we going to see another even more sawn off tales? <laughs> well, I think I'm not writing any more really short flash fiction. But mm-hmm. I'm working at the moment. My other project, as well as a graphic novel, is a is a, a set of novels. Um, uh, a trilogy of novels set, set in West Cumbria, where I come from. Wow! So I've written the first one, which yep. is finished. That's called all, all the places I've ever lived, Gosh. and that's a kind of um, what is it? It's a kind of um, it's a weird sort of time travel book about. It's about the the the, the book is about uh, a teenage boy who's visited by the ghost of a murdered teenage girl who takes him into the future to prevent a multiple spree shooting. That's what it's about. Wow. And that, that sounds amazing. In West Cumbria based on two real murders, the spree shootings of Derek Bird mm-hmm. and the murder of a, a, a young woman when I was a, a, a lad in Cumbria Gosh. in the 70s. So that's the first novel. And the other two novels, which I've also kind of mapped out, follow on yeah. from that plot. So I, I'm, that's the other project I'm working on. So flash fiction, I've not kind of had a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Because it's quite time-consuming flash fiction, as you know. Yeah. Writing it, you've got to put loads idea of ideas and all of that. Yeah. At least with a novel, you just sink into it. Yeah. You come back home, you sink into the novel. You know the characters, you know the place. It's kind of yeah. easier in some ways than endlessly inventing. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I, the short fiction for me, I've tried it before, and like you say, I don't have enough ideas to pull it it's off. It's just like it eats your ideas up. Yeah. yeah. So you've got one idea and you've got it written down, you go, that's going to be a really good story, but I don't know, you're on the bus or something, you hear something else, you go, I'll go with that bit. Yeah. But then you go, I need another bit too. Yeah. It might take like a year for you to actually get the ideas together. But yeah. Then you go, whoa, I've got it. Yeah, <laughs> especially if you've got, like some people, they'll have like a short story collection where they'll kind of, not only will they be separate stories, but they'll actually, there'll be a, a theme that kind of weaves through all of them. And I, just, I always think that's just something that I couldn't even uh, I think that doing comes kind of by accident. Does it? I yeah, think a lot I don't... of my flash fictions are about workplaces mm-hmm. um, and first dates. Right. <laughs> um, but definitely about workplaces. And so I think if I like, put a short story collection together, it would be like, kind of, yeah, it's all the work stories. Because you can, I, th- I think that most short story collections are not really linked by a theme, but you yeah. can always link them and say they're about, all about loss. Life. Or aging in yeah. some way, or the different stages of life, because yeah, every yeah, character yeah. is different. But in, in general, they're generally not that well linked, yeah. I don't think, in real life. But then again, other short story writers like Raymond Carver, who would write stories that aren't linked, yet they're all the same, mm. really. They're yeah. all about middle-aged blokes with a drink problem, yeah. knocking around in America, doing, you know, having relationship problems, and they're more or less all about the same thing. Him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, they're, so they're, they're, in a sense, it's a novel, in a sense, a collection yeah. of those. It's just a novel seen from uh, various angles and various different aspects of it seen from different points yeah. and that's kind of what how, how maybe it works cool. 
What do you think makes for a good short story? <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> a good short story. Mm. Um, it's got to be. Um, Is that kind of a boring general question? No, I think that a good short story. I feel like because to have something, it can't just be an, uh, a, a description of a scene, which almost feels like it could slot into a novel. Yeah. So it can't be that. It must be. So it must have a, its own arc within it. Yeah. The movement from a from one point to another point, moving through, and maybe moving through different stages. So yeah. I think it does have to have movement. I think it's yeah. got to have an emotional hook as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which. Obviously, you get in novels in various sections of it, whereas the short story has got, has got to have an emotional hook that pulls you in to start with mm -hmm. and then leaves you with something thinking about at the end. Yeah. A good short story is something that you keep thinking about. Yeah. Definitely. But, but maybe we've got too tied up to a certain type of short story. Uh, and the type is the kind of the Carver type story. Mm -hmm. The story is based on an epiphany. Yeah. You look for that epiphany in the middle and it's to check off Joyce, Carver. There's a line that goes through those authors and they're all the same, really. Yeah. That line is this kind of, oh, it's this point in this person's life. Yeah. They've lived a hundred novels. Yeah. But the only part that's important is this 2,000 words. Yeah. Out of all those hundred thousand words and this is the part where this epiphany happens yeah. and something happens and you as the reader have got to notice where that is yeah. and you've got to notice what it is yeah, and true. it might not feel like there's much movement in it but mm. you, you find it in there and that's the kind of I think that's where it's, that's kind of where we are and maybe there is room to for different sort of short stories mm. that aren't about that yeah I thought yours were quite um, yours like a, almost a fleeting glimpse into, I wouldn't even say their life, but just, it, you know, it starts with a question, kind of, at this, at, it starts with questions. The, the answers to those kind of questions are in the story itself, and then you leave them with more. So it's kind of mm. more questions, I mean. Yes. Is that complete bullshit? That no, I think I'd rather leave, I'd, I'd, I'd aim to, certainly in the last book, I'd aim to leave sort of an, an enigmatic kind of feeling and a feeling yeah. of not quite understanding what it is yeah. and feeling where it's going and a feeling of rather than it's an ending feeling more like it's, it ends with the beginning yeah. and it ends in oh yeah that could, where's that going what does it mean so yeah. that's ideally I think with the first book Sawn Off Tales there's probably a few more stories that have got a reveal punchline sort of ending mm -hmm. which, uh, which are okay but they're not what I would strive to do now yeah. And they're, they're kind of a bit more, yeah, this is the reveal. Yeah. And that's it. And those sort of stories can leave people, some people love them, but most, it doesn't, it leaves you slightly cold and it can feel like you've been cheated yeah. by a kind of magician who yeah. said, actually, you thought that was happening, actually, it's sleight of hand, actually, that's happening. Right. And you didn't know, yeah. aren't I clever? Mm -hmm. And then it feels that the reader then doesn't feel valued. Yeah. Mm. I definitely didn't get that from. The second book. Okay. Yeah. Stuff, so I hope. No, I think that's moving forward. But I think that a good. I don't know. A good. A good short story is something that. And also the thing about short story is being compact, and something you can experience quite quickly, mm -hmm. but something you can experience in great depth, great emotional depth. And that's the power of a really good short story. Yeah. You don't need to read a novel to get that emotional depth. No. And feel like you've been on a journey where you might have only been on a train journey yeah. of an hour. Mm -hmm. too but you've had this you know, enormous thing where you think god that could have been a novel and it feels like it's a novel yeah we yeah definitely yeah. i'd agree with that completely um 
With the tiny stuff though, perhaps the actually the ones that we perform, the preferred ones as performance pieces are um, things that I've got a punchline ending. They're maybe not so a punchline, maybe, but they've got jokes in them. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. You're, you're appealing to an audience face to face, so you, yeah. that's, that's the. But fun. once you've got it all written down, you realise which ones are going to work on stage yeah. and which ones are going to work on page. <laughs> <laughs> Try to write for both. I do, anyway. Yeah. Um, and I tend to read, when I'm performing, I only read the stories that have got funny lines in because <laughs> I get a laugh. Yeah. And, and I don't read them and oh, you only write funny stories? Well, I don't really, but yeah. they're the only ones you ever hear me read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you write some tragic, awful, sad some stories. Sad stories yeah. and sinister stories, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. Uh, but we don't read those loud, really. Mm. But the, 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 the interesting story that we're going off on a tangent. That's fine, right? go ahead. The interesting story that I wrote is just, I think that it has an interesting audience reaction is a story called Uncle Leonard, which we do in Les, Les Malheurs. Uncle Leonard is about, an, it has no story to it really, it's about an older man <laughs> who's in his 60s and he used to work in a museum curating a collection of moss and he has a, <laughs> a girlfriend and um, he lives on his own, it's all tragic and that story takes you through that description, the audience falls about laughing at that, yeah. they think it's hilarious, that poor uh, Uncle But Leonard. then at the end it's got a killer line that you just go, oh God, and, and the everyone goes, no. For some people, some people, they'll never find anyone to love them. That's mm-hmm. the final line, which I thought was deadly. And the audiences yeah. love that story about yeah. poor Leonard. No. And, 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 and sometimes you just don't know yeah, what, definitely. what it is about people that like. Yeah. yeah. What's it like? Now, I've, just, I've left the personal questions to the end, in case they're awkward. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like having your significant other... Critique your work. Is that do you find it's different, or do you, are you, are you overly nice? Are you more mean? Uh, Does it matter? Do you have do you point on your professional face and go right? This is. Um, I probably am more honest with David than I am with the other members of Inklings. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Are you both in Inklings as well? Like you're both yeah. in that group. Yeah. Oh right, okay. We're founding members. Oh, I see. And I give Claire all of my stuff to read, to edit and yeah. proof, don't I? Because mm. um, um, I know yeah, she'll find mistakes. Yeah, sometimes I just go, I don't get this. Yeah. Why is that? I don't get it. I'm still flummoxed by a couple of your stories, and I have to read them all the time, and I'm still like, which bit is that bit? And right. Why is, who's that? And, um, <laughs> well, you must, uh, I, I would have thought you'd probably have um, some insights at other people, because you've read all of his stuff, really. Um, or maybe you haven't. Uh, but you uh, haven't read see, all of my stuff. I haven't. I haven't read his novel. Oh, <laughs> the one that's published. You've read the new one. I've read all of the new one, but I yeah. haven't read the first. Yeah. I've got my mum to do it for me. She's good at reading huh. everyone's stuff and telling me what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's an interesting insight into David's brain. Yeah. I don't know what's going on in there. I think sometimes it can be too distracting to read and critique the work of somebody you're close to because you don't um, you're distracted by the things that you know that they're interested in and they're there oh you're writing about that you're always going on about that and then yeah. isn't there so it, it, it's not you need other people yeah it's not yeah, it's definitely. not a good it, because there, there's a kind of a, a barrier they don't go through mm-hmm. because they'll say well you're always going on about why are you writing here about buying a 
buying a coffee table with uh, certain coloured legs and a melamine <laughs> top in this book because you keep trying to buy us one of them in the flat. <laughs> Stop going on about that bloody coffee table. Uh, but it's he, not even a story for the group at all. It's just it's, it's just it's a just, subtle tint. It's just a way of getting your I've had another coffee table link today. Oh, do you, you want to buy this on eBay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I send, I endlessly find coffee tables and send links to Claire, and Claire says, "No, it's not right. Yeah, it's not right. <laughs> Finding the right coffee table, so they have to yeah. smuggle coffee table incidents into stories and try yeah. and get the right sort of thing into her head, so she'll agree to these eBay <laughs> coffee table purchases, but it's not worth it. Yeah, yeah, we've got a whole study full of coffee tables that I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> wow, how big's your house? Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> No, I kind of, um, I don't know, yeah, it is difficult, but we, when we first, actually David used to critique my stuff before we were kind of going out with each other, yep. um, and that was really useful for me kind of... Have you found the critique has changed? Um, well, no, you're still quite harsh about... I kind of write something and I kind of go, oh, I like this. Well, and then I'll hone it for ages and, and often, then David will go, no, actually, that I often bit, will say get that, rid of it. that doesn't work for me and when Claire will just ignore me. Yeah. Yeah, don't go. Because you know, you know each other's biases, though, as well, don't you? Mm. Yeah, and I used well, to say the true. same thing. I say, the ending, that should be the beginning and cut out all the rest. <laughs> I fucking hate that. Do you hate I that? Get that? In my writing group, Ben Judge will do that. <laughs> he'll say what you need, you know, you, how you've written, and you'll submit like five thousand words yeah. or something, and he'll go right, just a big black cross again. It's like the first three pages, and go start there, and just forget that bit. I do that quite often. And it's probably, it's probably what you need to hear. Yeah, I don't well, want to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. What are you talking about? Everything I write is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. No, it is tricky, but then it actually is quite useful. Yeah. Because it does make you see the wood from the trees, and yeah. you are so into it yourself, and you've honed it so much yourself that actually getting that kind of. Oh, yeah. So sometimes actually David will critique my stuff before I put it in to the pretty loop, and I'll, make, I'll have made it loads better. <laughs> the interesting thing, though, is about why, why as writers are we obsessed with getting feedback from other writers and changing as a result of it because other artists don't do that mm. if you're a painter <laughs> you go you, you have complete confidence you produce a painting you don't take it to other painters and say what do you think you think I should move that tree yeah. and all of that you think I should do that you don't do it. musicians don't write a song and take it to other musicians yeah, but they and do say, if they're in a band no, not really I don't I think it, it's not a culture Guy Garvey recently who's now produced a solo thing and he was talking about elbows it's a completely different creative process working as a solo artist than working as a band because the band will say to you nah, that lyric, that's not working mm. or no, that riff, that's not working or something. I also think because your work, like written work is read and understood by more of the, the masses really like with art, like high, with, a, with a painting, you can just go, oh, well, you know, that's, you, you can read anything into most paintings yeah. whereas I think with a lot of, especially um, novels um there's, there, there are things in it that you can find, but I think for the most part, someone else, someone can read it who, who knows nothing about writing and enjoy it and see the things that you are trying to put forward. Yeah. And you can't hide behind that, oh, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's art, man. I think somebody's going to read it and understand what you're saying. And, yeah. it can be, and anybody can. So I think, for me, anyways, I wanted to get critiqued because I don't want to make an ass of myself. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, I'm the same. Be, I do mm. want to do that. I just sometimes think that writers 
are overly maybe critical. Maybe do think. lack that sort of confidence sometimes mm. to say, actually, I'm going to do this. Yeah. This is what mm. I am going to do. And yeah, I do want the factual things checked and typos and all of that mm-hmm. checked to make sense. But then in the end, I'm going to stick with it as it is. Yeah. Maybe more for poets, maybe yeah, than people trying to go for a mass market, yeah. novel market, which, as you say, yeah. needs to be understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do. We do writers do seem to be kind of always halfway between um, trying to write for a market yeah. mm. and uh, trying to yeah. produce art mm-hmm. and um, and the market is it's so difficult now to mm-hmm. get published into the market into the mass market mm. to yeah. make money that um, you sometimes wonder whether people should just have more confidence yeah instead of pandering to that oh what should I do should I yeah. write the next Gone Girl yeah should I write yeah. well why don't I just write what I want to write yeah because only a thousand people are going to buy it anyway. Yeah. If you, well, if you can get published, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. One question I always ask everybody on this, just because this is kind of my own personal thing. Uh, how do you make money doing what you're doing, or do you? Clearly, you do. Like when you're published and if you've got published work and that. But I mean, I, if it's especially if it's like a lot performance based. Um, how do you survive? Well, sometimes we get paid for performances, mm-hmm. which is quite nice. Um, especially if you've got like a kind of act like Les Malheureux. I don't know that we're in the black necessarily, but at least swings and roundabouts, so yep. we're not kind of completely in debt over yeah. that. Um, and sometimes, like, I don't know, running workshops you get, might get paid for. Mm-hmm. My kind of day job has always been as a journalist mm-hmm. um, and so that's kind of why I got back into creative writing was because I was always interested in words and yep. stuff um, so I kind of earn money through copywriting and journalism yep. and marketing literature events and things like that um, so in fact I was shoehorning the Northern Lights Writers Conference which is coming up um, mm-hmm. So I kind of do marketing for them, but be- because I've got the knowledge of the literature scene and stuff like that and the contacts and things, I can kind of tap into that so mm-hmm. people don't mind paying a bit of money. So. Yeah. And then I do a lot of proofreading. Um, right. So yeah, so I, it's kind of all the stuff that's linked with writing, you know, if you, yeah. can, if you can string a sentence together and you can edit your own work, it means that you can look Ed- at other people's stuff and edit their work and proofread it. and. Mm-hmm kind of stuff and have that knowledge to be able to market their things and mm-hmm. so that's how I make money. Right. Most most writers have other jobs. Yeah. Yeah. There's very few that don't. I mean the creative writing industry, which is a, a sort of industry where when somebody's been published they yeah. might do an MA, PhD and then become a teacher mm-hmm. and lecturer at a university of which we've got lots in yeah. Manchester and teaching other innumerable more writers to send out there into the creative writing world so there's a whole there's a whole system there I mean most most writers even quite high profile writers have a job teaching at university usually or doing something I work for the Arts Council or doing something else and they um, I think I remember reading an interview with Ian Banks and he was saying that when he knocked around with other writers, he found he was one of the only writers he knew that didn't have another job. Mm-hmm. Mm. He didn't do anything else. He said, and he said all he did was he it took him three months every year to write a book. That's what he did. And then he spent nine months riding around on his motorbike. 
Yeah, it cars. That's what he did. He said everyone else yeah. he knew, even at the profile that he's at, were teaching at a university, yeah. Yeah. Uh, doing other things. There's much more money. I mean, I do a lot of work with funded projects, which is uh, publicly oh, funded from yeah, Arts yeah, Council, mm -hmm. and it's, it's much more lucrative to work in that area than it is to to, to be to, to trying to make money from mm -hmm. book sales. Yeah. That's another thing which I think a lot of writers don't realise is that Arts Council do um, grants for the arts. So I ran a project for Chaldon Arts Festival earlier this year and we got put in a bid and we got some money for it so it meant that I could pay myself for project managing it and commissioning a bunch of writers and then giving them some money as well. So, so all the writers got paid. So everybody Brilliant. got paid. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think people should tap into that mm. maybe. But I yeah. don't think that writers do need to make sure that everything they do is professionalised and there's, there is a culture out there of writers doing things for nothing, yeah. mm. which is a problem. And, and, and all of the time, even when I've worked with other writers and musicians and other artists, who've said, no, it's all right, I do it for nothing. And no, 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 we're not doing it for nothing. Yeah. You're going to be paid. It's a professional product that yeah. we're producing here. You're going to be paid for yeah. time. And uh, even though you don't want to be paid, you're going to yeah, yeah. be paid because it's not fair on other artists. Who doesn't want to be paid? Yeah, some people will say, so oh, I'll do it for nothing. Well, oh, it's fine. Especially if they've got day jobs as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. But no, no, people need to be paid. And, and, and writers do quite often you know people will say can you give us a short story for a magazine mm. yeah that might be sold in the shops and so yeah. on am i being paid for oh, no we haven't got any yeah. money no budget to be paid but you'll be in the magazine yeah thanks. that'll be nice that'll yeah be yeah, no, there's, yeah there is a certain yeah no, there's a massive kind of um, culture of, of that but some of it you know i don't know was a as a writer, I've done lots of stuff for now because then you make contacts and then people will eventually pay you and you, you do you get it. But it depends at what point you know yeah. you're at and what the thing is for. I did a yeah. reading at St Ives Literature Festival. Oh. Travelled all the way to St Ives, stayed two nights in St Ives, and was paid about eighty quid in two p pieces from a from a bottle of change. You know, like when people <laughs> have giant whiskey bottles and they put the two peas in. But you know, wow. sometimes you do that, another time you, you pay uh, properly. Yeah. And you balance it out. And yeah, it, yeah. And St. Ives is nice. It's a good time. <laughs> yeah. 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 And we've got lots of change for the bus. Yeah. <laughs> if you get a bus driver, it's pennies. Yeah. So that was a good chat, wasn't it? I thought um, the comments about the performance especially were good. And I, I realize this is the third podcast where we've discussed performance. Are you getting the hint that um, perform you can't really be a writer without performing your work these days? I also thought they were really quite accommodating, uh, treating me like a proper writer and talking to me like one when, you know, I've published zero there's very little, that's the thing I'm noticing when I'm talking to people, is that how little ego there is with uh, writers in this part of the world. I just want to talk quickly about an article I read on the Daily Beast, written by a man called Adrian Barnes. Now, Adrian Barnes and I have kind of this strange connection that he doesn't even know about. Um, he's never met me, he doesn't know me. But he, in a strange way, he's kind of responsible for me going back to university and getting my MA in creative writing because he is a he's a Canadian writer he writes post-apocalyptic fiction um, very good post-apocalyptic fiction and he got his MA in creative writing at Manchester Met 
And I wasn't sure if, A, a guy with a 40-year-old brain could actually go back to university and, and do well, and B, whether, you know, someone that writes genre fiction would be accepted at a university in some kind of creative writing program. Um, obviously, I've been there now, and it's, it was a ridiculous thought, but I large, when I saw that Adrian Barnes had gone there, that was the clincher for me, and that's why I chose MMU, and that's why this podcast exists, really. Anyway, he has written an article detailing his cancer. He's been diagnosed with brain cancer, and a very rare brain cancer, and the most fatal cancer, uh, one that, he, in his own words, has a death rate of about 99%. Most people, when they find out they have this cancer, have about a year to live. And this article goes talks about his um, the treatment that he's been taking in order to give him buy himself a few more months. And as a result of the treatment, he's had all kinds of, yeah, as you might expect, um, problems with memory, and it's so bad that he can't even remember writing his own book. And he can't write. He, obviously, he can't write anymore. I just wanted to say quickly that this podcast, this one, and all of them, frankly, are dedicated to him 